You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. All this is, is a great evidence of God's kingdom advancing. And, and we, we've titled the sermon series, um, uh, Thy Kingdom Come, because it's, it's, a, it's a call and a prayer for Jesus to establish his kingdom and advance his kingdom in the world. And so the good news of the gospel is that, is that Jesus is advancing that and saving people and, and adopting people into an eternal kingdom. And uh, so I want to I want to drill into that a uh, little bit more in depth as we finish Obadiah. I've got two sermon points for you. Um, I, I want to teach you today that all kingdoms are temporal. And I think we're going to see this clearly as, as the Lord speaks to the kingdom of Edom and Obadiah. And then also we'll see that God's kingdom is eternal. He's going to present that um, that ultimately his kingdom is superior, that it is everlasting. And, and just to kind of set up the context is, um, if, if you haven't been here for the, for the other two sermons, is you have the nation of Israel was divided into a northern and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had long been exiled out of the land. The southern kingdom of Judah was still in the land, but then taken into captivity by the, the Babylonian Empire. Now, the, the way that the Babylonian Empire got access to defeat of the military of Israel was through the kingdom of Edom. It was their direct southern neighbor. And this kingdom of Edom was a direct descendant of, of Esau. And so if you know anything about Jacob and Esau from Sunday school, Pastor Jeremy taught us a little bit about that last week. Um, but, but you know that there was this great rivalry between the two. And even in their descendants, it turned into this rivalry because, um, because they, they had this sharp disagreement that even went into their lineage. And so what you have are two kingdoms that are rivals and Israel's taken into captivity. Edom is gloating over their defeat. And then you have God through the prophet Obadiah saying, your nation will also be defeated. Your nation will be wiped off the face of the earth. And so as we look at that, you can keep that context in mind. As we look at the first point, all kingdoms are temporal. Um, I, I was reminded, we went to a conference several years back and, and David Platt was, was preaching. You may have heard of him. He's written several good books and um, he pastors in the D.C. area. And David Platt was preaching on the book of Esther and, and talking about coincidences and circumstances in Esther. And, and the point of his sermon was he was teaching and showing that, um, that he says that God had the whole thing rigged. That, that every empire, every nation that's ever existed, every moment in history is all falling perfectly into God's plan. That even the things that are, that are um, heartbreaking and grieving to God are ultimately serving in his eternal purpose. And this is the very uh, nature of God that he's working and orchestrating all of history to fulfill exactly what he wants it to accomplish. And this is the core of God's promise to Abraham. If you remember in, um, in Genesis uh, when, when he goes to a man named Abram, who's not worshiping the Lord, who's worshiping pagan gods, and for no reason in, in and of himself, he calls Abram and he says, I want you to worship me and I'm going to make a promise to you to give you a, a, an inheritance, to give you a land, and to make of you a great nation. And he calls Abram, by the way, Abram's name means father of a nation. We're going to do lots of Hebrew today, okay? So I apologize in advance for speaking other languages. But, um, but Abraham means father of many nations. And so his name changes from Abram, father of a nation, to Abraham, father of many nations. And he begins this great promise that weaves its way throughout the rest of the Bible, that ultimately God is redeeming through a family more people into an eternal family. And he tells Abram, you're, you're you looking at the sky, the stars that you see, count them if you're able to, so shall your descendants be. And he says, look at the sand, the grains of sand on the seashore. He says, so shall your descendants be. And y'all remember, if 
you grew up in church singing that song, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons have Father Abraham. You remember, you, you stick your tongue out and you, you know, turn around and move your arms. And Some of y'all that don't know that song are really confused right now, okay? Um, but I, I remember singing that and not understanding the theology behind it. Like, I, I thought it was about Abraham Lincoln for a while. Um, didn't know what I was singing about. And, um, and eventually, you know, I begin to read and study the Bible and I find out that this is a reference to us being adopted into God's family. And so Father Abraham, the patriarch of God's kingdom, as he made this covenant with Abraham, uh, we're told in the scriptures that we are grafted in or adopted into this family, even though we may not be ethnically a part of the family. And so that's really the heart of what I want to look at today as we finish out Obadiah. And because God had promised that the nation of Israel would eventually swallow up all other nations. And we have that promise and Israel kind of misunderstood it. Instead, they became like kind of a proud people, uh, proud of their nation people, which inherently there's nothing um, in and of itself that's wrong unless we elevate that above God's plan. And that's exactly what Israel did. Um, I want to read Psalm chapter two, because I think it, it puts a good undergirding to the whole sermon. And I don't want to fully exposit it, so I won't take time to preach Psalm two, but I want to read the whole Psalm um, because it was a popular song. It was like a billboard chart-topping hit for the Israelites, and they would sing this often. Uh, the song is titled, The Reign of the Lord's Anointed. And the song goes like this, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, what's interesting about this song is Israel had begun to look at this song, and when it says that, that all of this was given to the begotten, the son, they viewed that as their nation rather than the king the Messiah. Now, in, in the new covenant of the revealed mysteries of God, we know this to be Jesus Christ, the, the only begotten of God. Jesus himself takes this title and he says that promise wasn't to the nation, it was to the king of the nation. And so when they read it, they thought, hey, all nations have been given into our hands. We have military rights over all nations. We can dash them into pieces with rods of iron and do as we wish. And you could imagine why they were confused when nations actually defeated them. And while they were carried off by militaries into captivity, it didn't make sense with Psalm 2 until Jesus is born and he says, I am the only begotten of God. And so what's Jesus doing in bringing all these nations into his possession? What is that about? Well, Jesus actually explains it in John chapter 3 as he's teaching to Nicodemus. He says in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so Jesus comes and he has a rod of iron with rightful due justice to execute wrath upon nations. But first he gives this patient, long-suffering invitation to all people in all nations to be forgiven, to be invited into the kingdom of God. 
He says that whoever would believe in the Son would not perish. He continues in verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So the ultimate plan is not just the expansion of an empire, but the salvation of many people. You see, Israel had vastly misunderstood this. They saw themselves as a kingdom that was big enough. They were satisfied with who they were, and the swallowing up of other nations was merely destruction. And they viewed themselves as the agent of destruction rather than an agent of adoption. But what God had purposed this nation to be was a proclaimer of an invitation, not destruction. In the end, you see, the only ones that will be destroyed are those who ultimately will remain in their stubborn sin and refuse to bow the knee to the rightful king. Kiss the son lest he be angry, as the song says. In verse 18 of John 3, Jesus continues, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so that's what we would call the meta-narrative of Scripture. You see this big picture of God establishing from one nation a, a, an eternal nation. And, and what Israel had misunderstood was they, they viewed their election, their, their choosing, they viewed their election as exclusivity. We're the only chosen people. But the, but the problem was that's not what God had purposed in them. It wasn't just exclusivity. What God had purposed in them was a beginning point, a starting point, that Israel was where uh, the, the geographic location was going to be the starting point of God's plan that would then infiltrate every nation on the earth. And, and so we see that in the end, the only ones that are destroyed are those who do not accept this gracious invitation that the Lord gives. And so Israel obviously was confused. They had sung Psalm 2, and they had not defeated other nations. In fact, they had been defeated by other nations. They did not possess the land anymore. At this time, they had been exiled into Babylon. And so they're exiled, and you got to think their chart-topping hit of Psalm 2 had to be a little bit confusing to them. And their enemies, Babylon and Edom, are gloating over them, and God speaks on behalf of his people to those enemies of God. And Obadiah, verse 15, is where we'll begin. Now, verse 15 is important because there's a shift in Obadiah. So we spent two weeks in Obadiah, uh, first 14 verses. And now as we finish the book, starting in verse 15, there's a shift. All the condemnation is, is primarily aimed at Edom, this, uh, this neighboring kingdom to God's people. And God has condemned them. But in verse 15, he shifts from just speaking about Edom to speaking about all nations. And in verse 15, it says, The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. Not just Edom, but all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk in my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. Now, that's, that's a good verse for you to put in your kitchen, right? A um, little bit disturbing there. So I, I want to unpack that. What's going on? And, and, and so the term day of the Lord is, is most frequently used as a um, descriptor of judgment. That, that, that God is coming to bring judgment to someone. And so he's making it evident that not only is he going to judge Edom, he is going to judge the nations. And all those who refuse to bow to him are going to be uh, swallowed up. 
uh, this drinking and swallowing. The imagery that's used is imagery of God's cup. And if you remember, God's cup always describes what? It describes his wrath. That's why Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane prays that the cup would be removed from him. It's God's wrath. And it's also, this, this day of the Lord is also used to refer to the consummation of all things at the end of time when Jesus returns uh, to establish his eternal kingdom. And so it's important to understand that prophecy in the Old Testament usually has a dual fulfillment. Um, it fulfills something in the immediate, but it also foreshadows something in the future. Okay, so here the Lord has spoken through Obadiah of a coming judgment for Edom, but he broadens it out and says, not only is this going to happen to Edom, it's going to happen to all nations, thereby giving us principle that nations ultimately belong to the sovereign God. He's speaking of this coming judgment, and Obadiah says that every nation will cease to exist. If I was a better pastor, I would have looked up how many nations there are, but I didn't, so I apologize for that. If y'all want to Google it, just don't yell it out. Keep it to yourself. We don't want chaos. But there's a lot of nations, and I know that primarily because when I go to the emoji keyboard on my phone, you can scroll over to where the flags are, and there's a lot of flags. It's like half the emojis in your emojis are flags. Um, so there's a lot of nations represented by those flags. We even have like presidential flags now. You have a Trump flag. You have a Biden flag. There's a Brandon flag. Haven't figured out who that is yet. But there's all these like flags, and and there's flags for our favorite causes and things we stand for, and and every flag representing a kingdom, a nation, or a cause. But but the Bible is very clear that the only one that will remain eternally is. The cross of Christ. I mean, think about this. The, the, every flag represented in the United Nations will one day burn and cease to exist. But the cross will stand for eternity as a symbol given to us of how we were adopted into an eternal nation. And given this truth, why in the world would we want to dedicate the majority of our time to a kingdom that is temporal? Why, would, why in the world would we dedicate the majority of our efforts and, and the majority of the things that we stress and worry about to things that will pass away, temporary things like possessions and status and careers. Why would, we, why would we stress and worry so much over those things when God has called us to lift our eyes to something higher, something that is eternal? We should work hard not to earn our way into heaven, but because we've been gifted heaven. And when we understand that we've been made citizens of heaven, then it puts everything in its right order in our lives where we can be patriotic and we can have a good career and we can work hard, but all of that finds its right place underneath the kingdom of God that we belong to. Ultimately, we see that we work hardest or we should work hardest for eternal things in our lives. The souls of people in our care the souls of the people in our spheres of influence, the relationships we have, those people are souls that God has created to exist for eternity and they will exist for eternity and we should be investing in them as such. And so we see that all these kingdoms are temporal. The second thing I want you to take home today is that God's kingdom is eternal. God's kingdom isn't place, it's a people. I want you to remember this. God's kingdom isn't a place, it's a people. We often speak of of Israel as a place because I think it's, it's natural for us when we read the Old Testament to see a, a, a land and a nation and borders and all those things existed, but God is teaching us something through that, that that was the starting place and that ultimately God is redeeming in us. We have this mystery revealed in the New Testament that, that we are living stones, that the house of God is not some temple or cathedral we come to, that we are the dwelling place of God and, and, and that God moves in and through his people. And so his kingdom isn't a place of borders. It's a place of, of pervasiveness that is his people. 
It's, it's, a, it's, it's a mind-blowing thing when we see what God has accomplished in his church. And, and the church, by the way, is eternal. I, I, I went to another conference one time and, and heard a pastor preaching, and he, he, said the, he said this. He said, the church is temporary, and the kingdom is eternal. And that's wrong, by the way. That's, that's bad preaching. Um, I sat there and thought about that, and I, I understand what he was trying to communicate, because he was trying to communicate that like New Heights Church will cease to exist at some point. Uh, but the reality is, is that the church is not just an incorporated entity. The church is the people of God. And so the church is eternal. The church is the kingdom of God. The kingdom is the church of God. And this is what's known as a nation that God has called us out of our ethnicities and the places we're born to exist in him for eternity. And so Jesus will always preserve his church for now and on into eternity. And, and after he declares the destruction of Edom, guess what? He declares the preservation of his people, Israel. Obadiah 17 says, In Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy or set apart. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. He's saying the house of Jacob, that's a, that's a term for his people. He's saying they're not going to be ruled and reigned by another government. They're going to they're eventually be set free. Verse 18, he continues, the house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame. And so that's an indicator of the people of God being a burning mechanism. And he says in the house of Esau, stubble, that's Edom. Uh, they're going to be burnt up. They shall burn them and consume them. There shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. That's a, that's a big proclamation from God here. He's basically proclaiming that his people will never cease to exist, that his kingdom is eternal. Now, lineage is a big deal in biblical hermeneutics. So when you study the Bible, lineage is important because it reflects the promises of God. And so you know there's genealogies in the Bible. When you do a Bible reading plan, you skip over them. Um, those are there for a reason. And uh, listen, I don't blame you for skipping over them. The names are hard to pronounce. I got that. Uh, but the reason we're given those is so we can trace back person to person to person generationally how God has been faithful to fulfill his promise beginning in the people of Israel and then expanding to the whole world. And what you see here is when he says the house of Jacob, the word house is one of my favorite Hebrew words. All right, I'm going to teach it to you all today. Some of you already know it because I've talked about it before, but it's the Hebrew word bayith. Can you all say bayith? Bayith. Um, it sounds like when you're from Lincoln County and you need to get clean, you go take a bayith. Um, and, and so... Bayith is, is my favorite Hebrew word because it sounds like redneck talking, but also for what it means because there's not a great English translation and it sounds, um, it, in English, we lose a little bit of the meaning because it just says house. And when we think house, um, we just think people that live with us, right? And we even put it in our kitchens, speaking of verses for your kitchens, um, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That quote from Joshua 24. And we think that means me and my kids and my spouse and so forth and so on. But when you understand bayith, what it means literally is me and my descendants forever. And so when Joshua said, as for me and my house, he said, my bayith, we will serve the Lord forever. The, my descendants, my children, and my children's children, we will serve the Lord forever. And so when, when God refers to his people as the house of Jacob, it's, a, it's an inference to the fact that his kingdom has no end. 
that it will never cease to be. And so he says, the house of Abraham, the house of Isaac, the house of Jacob, the house of Joseph, that it's a godly family and this house is the victorious house. This is the house that's the victor. And it's all won by King Jesus, their rightful coming king. And the house of Esau and Edom is reprobate and refuses to bow the knee to the one true God. Now, if you got a Bible and you want to, you don't have to, it'll be on the screen, but if you want to go to Romans 9, I've got a lot of verses to read in Romans 9, so you can go there with me if you like. Um, Romans 9 gives good commentary on this idea, because if you're tracking with me so far, it would be easy to say, okay, God's going to preserve Israel. Now, what is Israel? Um, does that mean God's just going to preserve a country? And, and for a lot of time, I mean, especially like before 1948, people would be like, well, God didn't keep his word because the nation of Israel didn't exist. And then they were reinstituted in 1948 after World War II. And so then people were saying, that's a fulfillment of things because Israel existed. Here's the argument I would make biblically is that Israel um, was never intended to just be limited borders of the Jordan River and the seas and the mountains. That Israel is, is, a, is a thing that God is teaching his people is ultimately um, a grander spiritual family that God beckons people from all nations to be adopted into. And so when we see uh, Israel in the New Testament, that means you, if you trust in Jesus, our king, you are Israel. I am a part of Israel. Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. And I'm one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right? Let me show this to you because we see this probably most clearly in Romans 9, although it is in some other places. But for the sake of time, we'll look at Romans 9. Um, he even goes, Paul, to explain this principle, even goes back to Jacob and Esau. In chapter 9, verse 10, he says, Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, uh, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, this will make some of you uncomfortable, and, and I'll just put myself in that boat too. There's a part of this that's uncomfortable for me to think about God hating anyone. Uh, I think we're conditioned to, to just naturally think, well, God loves everybody. But God's not very loving if he doesn't, if he doesn't hate the people who are enemies of those whom he loves. Um, for God to truly love the children whom he died to save, then, then God has to have wrath on those who are antagonistic and opposed to them. And so the reprobate is damned because of their disobedience. It's not God's fault that we've walked into sin, but those of us who are saved are saved not by our obedience. We're not saved by doing all the things right. We're not saved by keeping it all together and being holier than thou. We're saved by grace, and then the works come after that. And so uh, this grace saves us, God's sovereign choice to intervene into our life, and so God's election changes us. And so the natural question and the tension that Paul's leaning into in Romans 9 is he's saying, well, does that just depend on what nation we're born in? What about the, what about the Romans who were reading this letter? They were well, I, I wasn't born as a Jew. Does that mean I can't, I can't experience the promises of God? What's that mean for me? Here's where it gets good. God draws his chosen people from all nations to make a greater nation. More from Romans 9. Look at verse 6. Paul explains this fact. He says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for all, not 
all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And so Paul's anticipating an argument coming from the Romans as they're looking at Israel's history. And he's saying, not everyone who is born ethnically Jewish is saved just because of their ethnicity. And similarly, those who are born outside of Israel aren't damned just because they weren't born in the right place. He continues in verse 7, Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. Now you got to hear this. That means that you don't go to heaven just because of who you're, what family you're born into. You don't go to heaven because Papa was a preacher. You don't go to heaven because you're born into a Christian family. You don't go to heaven because you're an American. It's, it's not of your flesh. But he continues, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Well, how do I become a children of a promise? You believe the promise. You believe that Jesus gave his life to die for jacked up people like you to redeem you out of the depths of your sin and give you a royal inheritance and eternal life. The beautiful promise that's spoken of in Romans 9 is that people like me who had no right to be in God's family get treated like royalty. I can't explain that fully. That's always going to fry my brain. But that is what the gospel is. This great transaction that takes place of someone who shouldn't have been in God's family, but is adopted by a high king. That's the gospel. And so the children of the promise, he says, are counted as offspring, as if they were born into the right nation, i.e. the eternal nation of God, the house of Abraham, the house of Isaac, the house of Jacob, the Bayith, if you will, descendants forever to live forever in Jesus' presence. You see, Israel is an elect spiritual family, not merely a country with borders, and God will never be limited by borders. This is the revealed mystery of the New Testament that we get hints of in Obadiah, but is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul again writes, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. You see the global focus of God, not just Israel. In Mark 11, we see Jesus speaking. It says he's teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. That The Israelites were supposed to take the temple and make it a house of prayer so that they could swallow up nations in grace, bringing them to the one true God, not destroying them, but he says you've made it a den of robbers. Jesus also speaks in Luke 24 that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Not being exclusive in Jerusalem, but having a beginning point there and then permeating throughout the whole world. We probably see this best in Jesus' great commission in Matthew 28, 19, where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of who? All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 2, we see gathered together. Peter preaches probably the second best sermon of all time. 3,000 people get saved and baptized that day. And in Acts 2, 5, it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. That God had drawn them there to show them the glorious gospel that Jesus had died for sins and risen from the dead. And he was the rightful king that people had been singing about in Psalm 2. He's got the whole thing rigged. All nations will bring glory to God whether they want to or not. God will receive glory from every nation, tribe, and language. And every kingdom will be swallowed up by a greater empire, the eternal kingdom of God. They'll be swallowed up in his wrath and wiped off the face of the earth if they don't repent, or they will be swallowed up in his grace and adopted into the house of Jacob forever if they do repent. 
Obadiah 18 says, the Lord has spoken, which is just a way that, a way that God is telling us this plan will succeed. It's guaranteed. Obadiah finishes in verse 19, saying, those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. Now, what's happening here is these are geographical descriptors um, in the sixth, sixth century terms that show the rightful land of Canaan that was given to Abraham and God's people. And he's basically, if, if I could summarize this as best I can, he's basically saying the, the borders that I gave to my people, they're going to come back to and they're going to receive them. But he doesn't stop there. He continues in verse 20, the exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites. And then he goes, he says, as far as the Zarephath, which is beyond the borders, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, which is Edom, the kingdom that's going to fall. And it says, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. What's happening is God is saying, not only are my people going to take back their land, but they're going to, they're going to, expand and not just by military might they're going to expand by conversion that people in these other nations in these other parts of the world will begin to see the truth of the one true God and they'll begin to become my people they'll be adopted into my family they'll become my eternal worshipers verse 21 says saviors will return they shall go up to Mount Zion Zion is a Hebrew word that means sunny hill or sunny mountain um, and it was, it was a nickname for Jerusalem. And Jerusalem being that beginning point of where God's mission would begin and ultimately be fulfilled and accomplished in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But here he says that these saviors will go up to Jerusalem. The Hebrew word for saviors is yasha. And, and it, means, it basically means deliverer. Um, it, it's the same root word that would translate as salvation which means deliverance from destruction. And so these yesha, these deliverers, would go to uh, Jerusalem after exile. I think God's referring to primarily men like Nehemiah, who would return to Jerusalem and build uh, a barrier wall around the city, and men like Haggai and Ezra and Zerubbabel, who would return and make it their mission to rebuild the temple of God, to reestablish right worship of God. But even though that might be the primary fulfillment, I think there's a second and greater fulfillment that would come through another deliverer. His name in Hebrew and Aramaic is Yeshua, which is the same root, Yeshua, which means Savior. In English, we call him Jesus. His name literally means salvation. And he saves us, he delivers us from destruction, and he does so from a hill in Mount Zion. He goes to this sunny mountain and he's crucified on a cross and he's lifted up high for all nations to look upon him and see what God is doing in him. And, and for hours, this sunny hill is darkened as God fulfills and accomplishes what no military ever could. And this son, this only begotten that they had sung about for generations in Psalm 2, goes to Mount Calvary to be murdered, to pay the penalty that you deserve so that you could walk away from the nation of sinfulness and be adopted into the nation of grace. We see all kingdoms are temporal. They're all temporary. They're all going to fall. They're all going to cease to exist. 
And if they do so in rebellion and in a refusal to repent, here's what waits them. The rightful king at the end of Scripture is described in Revelation 19. Jesus here says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. That's the exact line from Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And for those who refuse to repent at the end of time, Jesus will rightfully pour out wrath upon them and He will be just in doing so and He will receive glory in doing so in their damnation for eternity. But, right now, God is patiently extending an invitation to the nations. The, the word Jesus uses is ethnos. It means all different people. That means today, I don't care what you've been through. I don't care what you've come from. I don't care what trauma is in your past. I don't care how your circumstances have, have crushed you. It doesn't matter what, you've, what sin you've committed. You are not too far gone to come to this kingdom and say, I want to be a part of this family. And the only begotten will welcome you and say, thank you for believing. Now welcome to this royal inheritance. And then you get to be a part of this multitude that we see in Revelation 7 at the end of time. John writes, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lord clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so we can make a choice while there's still patience in God Almighty to make that choice. And so we can, even, even today, we can present to you the same thing that Joshua presented in chapter 24 as he looks at his baith, his descendants forever, his house. And he says, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you'll serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Now listen, those idols may mean nothing to you, but you can choose. Are you going to follow in the footsteps of the world? Are you going to uh, make an idol out of yourself? Are you going to worship your comfort? Are you going to worship uh, temporal things? Or are you going to do what God has called you to? And Joshua says, but as for me and my house, as for me and my descendants forever, we will serve the Lord. And this is what Jesus meant when he prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for the advance of God's kingdom to be pervasive over everything in our lives. And if you haven't got in on that, it's about time you do so. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.